Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Luke. <clears throat> Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. There are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, and you may grab one of those and open to page 511. Luke chapter 18, we'll be looking at the first eight verses. Uh, We've been continuing through a series here at New Life on prayer. Uh, We're nearing the end of this sermon series. Actually, next Sunday will be the last sermon in this series. And um, I think as has been communicated pretty well, I'll be headed away on sabbatical during the months of June and July. And so uh, Pastor Brian will be preaching during the month of June a series on Elijah. And so uh, I know you'll be greatly blessed by that series. Um, And before we go further, I just want to remind you of why we've been spending all this time considering this topic of prayer. Uh, This is the sixth of seven sermons, seven sermons on this one topic of prayer prayer, and the reason why, hopefully you've got to gather this through this series, is that um, prayer is a real burden on my heart. I'm convicted that prayer is um, an essential key to spiritual growth for all of us, individually and as a church, that prayer is essential if we want to see people come to faith in Jesus, if we want to see conversions to Christ, we need to pray, if we want to see revival in our church, in our community, in our nation. It often comes through prayer. The importance of prayer cannot really be overestimated. Uh, And yet, very often, prayer is what we do after we've done everything else instead of being the first thing we do before we do anything else. Prayer is very easily set aside, but it's so essential, and so the burden of my heart has been to impress upon you, people of God, a new life to be a praying people, to devote yourself to prayer. And so this is a good time after having heard five sermons about prayer, I want to ask you, how is your prayer life? How's your prayer life going? Tim Keller has written a book on prayer, very good, I recommend it, and he has uh, an illustration where he compares prayer to a rowboat. And he says most of our prayer lives are in one of four areas with regard to uh, this metaphor of a rowboat. Uh, Your prayer life might be sailing right now. I guess a rowboat doesn't have a sail, but you might be just swimming along fine in your prayer life. You're sailing, the wind is at your back, and it's going very easily. Prayer is easy. You have a very rich, intimate prayer relationship with God. That's good. Um, Some of you, though, might be rowing. That is, the wind isn't kind of blowing at your back quite so much. It, it's, it's a struggle to pray, but you've got your oars in the water, and, and you're working, and you're rowing, and you're pushing ahead, and it's difficult. There's challenges, but you're actively praying. But a third category that maybe some of you are in, and that is that you've stopped rowing, and you're drifting. You've given up on prayer. You're not so sure about it anymore. Your oars are not in the water. You're drifting away. The danger is that that can eventually lead to sinking, and that would be the fourth category of our prayer life. You might be sailing. You might be rowing. You might be drifting. You might be sinking. Which one are you 
this morning. Here's what often happens is that we have a time in our Christian lives where we're sailing and things are going well and our prayer life is, is vibrant, but then something happens. We fall into sin, maybe. We discover that many of our prayers are unanswered. We don't sense God's presence when we pray. Our mind gets filled with doubts because of certain things we've been reading or hearing, and our heart dries up, and we stop rowing. And when we stop rowing, we start drifting. And the danger is that if we continue to drift, we might sink. This parable that we're about to read here in the book of Luke is directed specifically at this issue. This parable is given to us so that we would persist in prayer and not give up. And it's very clear that that's what this parable is about. This is a a, a parable that Jesus has told. Jesus often taught this way. He would tell these kind of stories as a way of presenting lessons uh, to people. And uh, you you might know that a lot of parables are hard to understand. Uh, We're not really sure what uh, Jesus is getting at because they're kind of peculiar stories. But this parable is not one of them. This parable is like what every preacher desires to preach from because the point is so easy because Jesus tells us what the point is. At the very beginning, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. That's the point of this parable. God wants you and me to persist in prayer. So let's read. Luke 18, if you're able to stand, please do so. I'm going to read Luke 18, 1 through 8, this parable told by our Lord and Savior Jesus. Luke 18, 1 through 8, and he, that's Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, here's the parable, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Spirit, would you please come again, open our hearts, open our minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So at the very beginning of this passage, um, we, we already get a bit of grace and comfort here, I, I think, in verse 1, because uh, when the passage says that Jesus tells this parable that we ought always to pray and not lose heart, there is the acknowledgement that that is a very common uh, occurrence for us, that is to lose heart. Um, It it is easy to become discouraged when we pray. It's easy to want to to give up. Jesus knows that this is a common experience, that all of us in this room have dealt with it, and we shouldn't pretend that, that we haven't. So Jesus knows that this is common, but nonetheless, he wants us to pray anyway. He wants us to persist. He wants us to persevere. And in this parable, there are reasons given why. 
That might be your question this morning. Why should I pray? Why should I keep praying? Why persist? Here's the first reason. Because God is ready to answer prayer. It's the first reason why you should persist. God's ready. He's even eager to answer prayers. Now, it's important to understand what kind of parable this is in order to really get the point. Um, This is a, a parable of contrast. Maybe it's been a while since you've been in an English class, but you might remember that when you compare two things, you're pointing out the similarities. When you contrast two things, you're pointing out the differences. Very important to understand as reading this parable. This is a parable of contrast. We're seeing the difference between this judge, who we've read about, and God. They're not the same, they're different. That's the point that Jesus is making. He's also using what is called a lesser to greater argument. In other words, what he's saying here in this parable is if A is true, if this one thing over here is true, then how much more is this other thing true? If A is true, how much more is B true? And I'll show you how that plays out in in the parable. Um, There is an argument that, that maybe you've heard and maybe you've even thought this way about prayer. There are some who say about prayer that um, you should just pray one time and ask God for something and then be done with it. Uh, And if you keep praying, you're actually showing your unbelief. You're actually suggesting that you don't believe that God is going to answer what you prayed for. If you believed it, you wouldn't keep praying. So there are some who say this. You pray one time and you're done with it. You show your faith by praying just once and be done with it. But clearly, that is contrary to what Jesus is saying here, right? Again, in verse one, he's telling this parable to the effect that we ought always to pray. We ought to persist in prayer. And Jesus uses this lesser to greater argument to make the point. So let's look and see how he does this. So we get this judge, as mentioned here in verse two. And um, who is this judge? Let's read it. It said, he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So here's a judge, doesn't fear God, has no regard for what God thinks or what God desires. Maybe he's an atheist, I don't know. He just doesn't have any sensitivity to spiritual things, no fear of God whatsoever. But on top of that, he has no respect for man either. No care for his fellow human beings. This is a guy who is hardened in his heart. He is ruthless. He has no mercy. He doesn't even care about needy people like the widow who comes before him in this passage. He reminds me a little bit of what Scrooge must be like, or Scrooge reminds me what this guy must be like. Every Christmas we hear about Scrooge and his hatred and hard-heartedness against people. This guy's a kind of a, a Scrooge. And in verse 6, we see that he's even unrighteous. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. He's, he's corrupt, even. There's an implication here that maybe there's one thing that would change the judge's mind. That's a bribe. Slip him some money uh, under the table. Maybe he would respond to somebody's request. But here's the issue. The person coming, making a plea to the judge is a widow who would be poor and needy. This widow, she has no money to offer up a bribe. So this widow who comes to 
the judge has really nothing to offer. She, she knows exactly what this guy is like. She knows that this is a man who would have no care for her whatsoever, who would not be inclined to respond to her pleas, and yet she calls out to him anyway. She pleads with him. She goes to him nonetheless, and, and she asks, and what we find, if you look down to verse four, is the judge gives in. For a while he refused the widow's plea, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, I certainly don't respect this widow, but because she keeps bothering me, I'm gonna give her justice. I'm gonna respond. I'm gonna give her what she wants. Now the point here in this parable, and I think we need to be very careful to acknowledge this, the point I don't think is that if you just pray long enough for whatever you want, you'll get it. Whatever you have in mind, big house in the suburbs to be famous and rich, or whatever it is, I mean, here's the magic formula. You just keep praying and God will give it to you. He'll give you whatever you want if you pray long enough. That's, that's not the point. The point is this, that very often the reason why we stop rowing, the reason that we often stop praying and appealing to God is because our perception of God, the way we conceive of him is more like the unrighteous judge than a loving and caring God. That's what ends up seeping into our hearts. When we have been praying over and over for healing from a disease, for instance, or praying for um, a spouse, or praying for a child, or for a grandchild, or praying for a job, or praying from some undisclosed con <coughs> conflict or disappointment that you're having, you're pleading with God for this, and he doesn't answer, the temptation is to begin looking at God as if he is uninterested in you, as if he has no willingness to respond to you, as if he is unmoved by your pleas, as if he has no regard for you in the same way that this judge has no regard for the widow. That's what seeps in, it's an attitude of, of unbelief. So Jesus here is not saying, oh just pray as long as you want and, and you'll get what you want. Jesus is challenging the attitude, our conception of who God is. What Jesus is saying here is there's a point of contrast, not comparison. The point here is not that God is like the judge, but that God is very unlike the judge. That's what Jesus wants you to see. He is ready to answer in eager, even though it might not seem like it. Even though he might, it might seem like he's uninterested, that, that God is not corrupt, <clears throat> corrupt. He is a righteous God. God is not irritated by your pleas to him. He is delighted, he is pleased to receive them. God is not only listening to you on certain limited occasions, he's li listening to you all the time. God is not like this judge. And so the way to summarize the argument that Jesus is making here is this. Here's his argument from lesser to greater. If the unrighteous judge answered the widow's plea, how much more willing is a righteous God to answer your plea? That's the point that Jesus is making. If the unrighteous judge answered the widow's plea, how much more should be there willing is a righteous God to answer your plea? Now I know the question that comes to mind is, well, I've been praying to God, it sure doesn't seem to me like he's very eager to answer my plea. 
It doesn't seem that way. So why should I keep praying? And I think the answer is that before we start looking to God to give us the things that we want, we need to be willing to approach God simply for the purpose of taking hold of him and who he is. I mean, that's the title of this entire sermon series. It's prayer, taking hold of God. That's really the essence of prayer. We're taking hold of him. We, we know he is there. We know he has saved us. He is our father. We want to draw close to him. We want to draw near to him. We want to commune with him. We want to know more of him. We want him first and foremost. And so we come into his presence. We take hold of him. I mean, if you think about what it would be like if every time you prayed and asked God for something, he immediately gave it to you. Certainly the temptation would be, wouldn't it, to only go to God when you wanted something from him. Oh, this is the way it works. I have something I like, I ask for it, God gives it to me, and once I get it, I'm done with God until I have another need. And then I'll come back and ask for the next thing, kind of like the the deadbeat son who only comes to visit mom and dad when he needs money. But what God desires is that we would come and bring to him the attitude that we see here in Psalm 63. David says, God, you are my God earnestly. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. God is ready to answer prayer. He stands eager to answer prayer. Bring that attitude, bring that faith to God when you pray. I think this is what Jesus is trying to teach us. Avoid that temptation to drift, to stop rowing and to drift into hard-heartedness and thinking that God is merely an unrighteous judge. A guy named Bill Thrasher says this, perseverance in prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but rather laying hold of God's willingness. But you have to believe that he's willing and come to him in faith and lay hold of that. So that's what Jesus is teaching here. That's the point. God's ready. He's not like this judge who was very unready. But then secondly, we see this. God rewards persistence in prayer. He's not only ready, but he actually actually rewards those who persist in prayer. So now let, let's focus a little more on the widow than on the judge. As we see, there, there was a widow in that city, verse 3, the widow who keeps coming to this judge. Now, you, you probably know that uh, the widow was on the lowest rung of the social ladder in biblical times. This widow would have had no husband, uh, no money, no influence, um, she has nothing to offer. Uh, we don't know the details of her situation. We're told in verse 3 that she has some kind of an adversary. Details not given. Somebody has committed an injustice against her. And so her plea to the judge at the end of verse 3 is, give me justice against this adversary. But here we have a picture of somebody who is coming to a judge with total helplessness. She has nothing to offer, which is an illustration of the way we all are when we come to God. We have nothing to offer. We come to him only in our helplessness. And there's something that's absolutely essential for us as we think about the very nature of prayer. This is the foundation of prayer, helplessness. 
And sometimes God lets our boat sink, right? So that we'll cry out in helplessness and plead with him for help. A guy named Ole Halsby says this, helplessness is the quiet, sustaining power of our prayer life. I never grow weary of emphasizing our helplessness for it is the decisive factor, not only in our prayer life, but in our whole relationship with God. So to be helpless is a good thing. And again, sometimes God lets us sink so that helplessness can become more vividly uh, aware in our minds. But here is this widow. She's got nothing to offer the, the judge except for one thing, and that is her ability to persist. Uh, this is a determined woman, and this is what she does. So verse 4, for a while it says the judge refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continued coming. This widow just wears this guy down. That phrase there for um, uh, keep bothering me actually is a Hebrew phrase which means strike me under the eye. It's a, it's a boxing term. Basically what he's saying is if she, she's going to give me a black eye. She keeps coming at me so persistently. Um, later on, verse 7, when Jesus is talking about God answering his people, he answers those who cry to him day and night. That's a description of what this widow is doing. Day and night, continual, persistent, persevering prayer. Uh, prayer and helplessness is a good thing, kind of like a 911 call, right? I mean, sometimes prayer is that way. We, we just got, we, we, we need help now. We dial 911. We call out to God for help. But that's not what's being pictured for, her, for us here in this parable. This is not a 911 call. This is constant calling. This is persevering. This is continual. This is constant. This is stubborn prayer. This is a person, this widow, who will not leave God alone. And the example we're given to us here is that this is the way we should pray. Don't leave God alone. Bother him. Irritate him, so to speak. Don't give up. Persist. Friends, if your prayer life is nothing more than just a quick prayer before your evening meal, if your prayer life is nothing more than a thank you God for this day as you're drifting off to sleep, you don't have much of a prayer life. You don't have a biblical prayer life. You don't have a prayer life like that which is presented to us here in Luke 18. Day and night, continual, constant, persistent. And the example given to us here is that God rewards that kind of prayer. This, this, judge, this, this judge finally gives in and gives her what she wants because she wouldn't give up. The picture is this. God rewards persistent prayer. Not always. Doesn't always give us what we want, but very often he does. He loves it when his people won't give up on him and keep pursuing him. Good example of this. Two examples I'll, I'll give you. Stories maybe you've heard before. George Mueller um, this great um, Christian in Britain in the 1800s uh, felt a call to start various orphanages in England. He had 
no money whatsoever, just decided that he was going to pray and ask God to provide for his needs, and God miraculously did. He never asked for money, all he did was pray, and the money came in. Now, that's not going to work for everybody, but in God's grace, it worked for George Mueller. Um, he started... Um, several orphanages that gave homes for 10,000 children started 117 schools uh, in 1800s England. A great man of prayer. Well, George Mueller um, sensed a commitment to pray for some friends. So he had five, five buddies, and they were all unbelievers, and he wanted to see them become Christians, and so he started praying for them regularly. After 18 months, one of the friends came to faith in Christ, year and a half. He kept praying for the other four. After five years, second friend came to faith in Jesus. He kept praying. After six years, a third friend came to faith in Jesus. Well, George kept praying year after year for these two other friends, and it turned out that Mueller passed from this life, died with only three of his friends coming to faith. Two of them didn't, but Two months after Mueller died, both of those two final friends came to faith in Jesus. All five friends converted through the prayers of George Mueller. Adding it up, as a summary, Mueller prayed for those two last friends who came to faith after he died for 52 years. He prayed for them for 52 years. And now he's fellowshipping with them for all eternity. God rewards persistent prayer. He does. We've had uh, an example of that even here in this congregation. I think a story that many of you know that I never tire of telling. Uh, this is Danny Addington, um, Carol Addington's husband. Carol is still a member here at uh, the church. And um, <clears throat> Danny um, was prayed for by Carol and her family for 50 years. Uh, he was not a believer. Carol and many in the family longed to see him come to faith, so, so they prayed for 50 years. And it was after 50 years that finally, in this church, he came to faith in Jesus, came to believe, was baptized here, and one year later, he passed away from brain cancer. One year before his death, he came to faith. 50 years of praying for that man. God rewards persistent prayer. Jesus is telling us this, that we might not lose heart. Don't give up. Maybe you've been praying for someone for five years or ten years or twenty years and you're thinking it's never going to happen. Keep praying. Don't lose heart. Get your oars in the water. Start rowing. Again, if you've given up, start praying for your unconverted friends. Start praying for your unconverted wife or a husband. Keep praying that your marriage would improve. Keep praying for that relationship to be restored. Keep praying for the vindication of the persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world, in China in particular. Pray that their persecutors would be overcome. Pray that they would be vindicated. Pray for revival in our land. Pray for revival in this church, in this community, in this nation. I know it seems like it's never going to happen. I know that. Jesus knows that, but keep praying anyway. Don't lose heart. God rewards persistence. He wants us to persevere 
and calling out to him. And the last thing we see here is that God responds to his people who pray. God is ready. He's he's eager. We need to conceive of him as a God who is ready to respond. He rewards persistent prayer. But he also responds in particular to his people. That's really the key phrase in this point. He responds to his people. And when I say his people, I mean the elect. Or that's the way they're described actually in this passage. So if you look at verse 7... Jesus says, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? This privilege of prayer, friends, is not given to everybody. It's not given to just anybody. It's given to God's people. It's given to Christians. It's given to those who Jesus refers to here as the elect. That is, those that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world. That's the elect. Those God has chosen to repent and believe in Jesus, we might say, you know, what makes a Christian? Well, what makes a Christian is someone who despairs of his or her sins, confesses those to God, receives Jesus as Savior, and gives himself or herself to follow Jesus throughout that person's life. That, that's, a, that's a Christian, a person who has given up on his own moral efforts and trust what Jesus did on the cross, shedding his blood in his resurrection from the dead. That's the person's only hope for salvation, only hope for eternal life, only hope for pardon before God. That's a Christian. That's what makes a person a Christian, and that's a call to everyone who hears the gospel. Repent and believe. But another question comes, which is this, what makes someone do that? (laughs) What makes someone want to repent and turn to Jesus and be saved? And that can only be described by the word, the sovereign grace of God. God's eternal love from before the foundation of the world, where God chooses those whom he will be saved as his elect. Don't see that phrase elect as a picture of some snooty, elitist country club group. That's not the the meaning of the term. The elect are simply sinners saved by grace. Sinners who have no other hope except in a God who would look upon them with favor even before the foundation of the world. And so that's who Jesus is talking about. These are the elect. And so this gives to us then another reason to persist in prayer. Because you, Christian, you who are among the elect, you can go to this God and pray because you belong to him. Uh, Because he has set his heart on you from before creation because he is more interested in you than you are interested in him, because he's more committed to saving you than you are to being saved, that he thought of you before you thought of him. He is committed to you. You are his child, you are his son, you are his daughter, he has shed your blood for you, he is your father, you're among his people, you're among the elect, so pray. Call out to this God who looks upon you not as just some random person in the universe, but somebody for whom he has intended to save from the very beginning. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? That's not the way fathers treat their children. That's not the way God treats his people. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father, there's the lesser to greater argument again, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So friends, we're seeing another contrast here. 
Contrast particularly with, with the widow. Um, the widow comes to the judge as a stranger, but you are a son or a daughter. The widow has no resources as she comes to this judge. You have an infinite number of resources. Every spiritual blessing has been given to you. You have a mediator who pleads with you before the Father. This widow was held in contempt by this judge. You are an object of his love and his favor and his grace. So that's the encouragement. So persist, don't give up. You have a listening ear and you're a heavenly father. Now the passage goes on in verse eight to say, uh, Jesus says, I tell you that he'll actually give justice to them and here's the tricky word, speedily, (laughs) quickly, which just seems absolutely contrary to everything that we experience. Boy, it sure doesn't seem like God is quick to answer our prayers, does it? I mean, in fact, that's the purpose of this kind of whole message is praying for 50 years. That doesn't sound very, very quick, does it? Doesn't sound very speedy. I mean, this is difficult. I mean, it's a good question. What does that mean? It gives justice to them speedily, quickly. It, it, it could mean uh, that in the context of all eternity, that relative to all eternity in God's perspective, it seems quick, Seems speedy, seems long for us, but short to God. Uh, some say that this, the word used here could actually mean something more like suddenly. Like suddenly he'll give justice when you've kind of put it out of your mind and don't expect it. Then God answers the prayer and it comes upon you as kind of a surprise. Um, it, it's a tough question. But here's a more important question. Jesus has another question in mind. That question is good. What does it mean by speedily? How do I deal with the fact that it takes so long for God to answer my prayers? But here's the question in Jesus' mind at the very end of verse eight. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's Jesus' question. Your question is not unimportant, but Jesus' question is more important. Is he gonna find faith on the earth? When he comes again, in the whole context of this parable, what he's saying is, when I come back at the end of the age, am I going to find people praying? Or will I find people who've given up? They didn't get what they want, and so they gave up. When Jesus comes at the end of the age, will he find you praying? That's what Jesus wants to know. That's why Jesus is telling us this parable, so that you would not give up so that you would not lose heart, so that you would call out, so that you would keep pleading, so that you would not give up. Everybody asks very often, how do I know if I'm elect or not? How do I know? Here's, here's an evidence of being elect. You keep praying. You don't give up. That's a good way to know if God has elected you. And that's the purpose of this parable. Don't give up. You know, there's nobody who is more persistent in prayer than Jesus himself. You wanna see a model of persistent praying? There's Jesus. Jesus died praying. When he was hanging on the cross, giving up his life, he was praying. He was saying to the Father, forgive my enemies, they don't know what they're doing. He's hanging on the cross. He's praying for the forgiveness of those who put him on the cross. He's calling out in, in his anguish, in his lament. He, he's saying, Father, why have you forsaken me? My God, why have you forsaken me? He says. 
He's, he's filled with anguish about the fact that he seems to have been forgotten by his father. But he doesn't stop praying. Even though he prayed in the garden for the cup to be removed and it wasn't, nonetheless, he kept praying. And while he's hanging on the cross, praying while he was dying, here's what he was doing. Pain for your sins and for mine. Pain for the sin of your prayerlessness. And paying the penalty for, for my prayerlessness. Covering, atoning for all the times that you have given up in prayer. And all the times that I've given up in prayer. He was taking the debt, paying the, for the anger of God against us for when we have lost heart and lost faith and given up and turned away and looked elsewhere and to worship other gods when we haven't gotten from him what we have desired. Jesus died praying. So friends, fix your eyes on him. Fix your eyes on him. Put your oars back in the water. Start rowing again and look for the day when the winds of God's Holy Spirit will once again be in your sails. Well, as usual, we're going to conclude by reciting the Lord's Prayer together. If you would please stand and musicians, you can now come forward. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.